Section 13 of A History of Our Own Times, Volume 2, by Justin McCarthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 23. Birth of the Empire, Death of the Duke, Part 1. The year 1852 was one of profound emotion and even excitement in England. An able writer has remarked that the history of the continent of Europe might be traced through the history of England if all other sources of information were destroyed by the influence which every great event in continental affairs produces on the mood and policy of England. As the astronomer infers the existence and the attributes of some star his keenest glass will not reveal, by the perturbations its neighborhood causes to some body of light within his ken, so the student of English history might well discover commotion on the continent by the evidence of a corresponding movement in England. All through the year 1852 the national mind of England was disturbed. The country was stirring itself in quite an unusual manner. A military spirit was exhibiting itself everywhere, not unlike that told of in Shakespeare's Henry IV. The England of 1852 seems to threaten that, ere this year expire, we bear our civil swords and native fire as far as France. At least the civil swords were sharpened in order that the country might be ready for a possible and even an anticipated invasion from France. The volunteer movement sprang into sudden existence. All over the country, corps of young volunteers were being formed. An immense amount of national enthusiasm accompanied and acclaimed the formation of the volunteer army, which received the sanction of the crown early in the year and thus became a national institution. The meaning of all this movement was explained some years after by Mr. Tennyson in a string of verses which did more honor perhaps to his patriotic feeling than to his poetic genius. The verses are absurdly unworthy of Tennyson as a poet, but they express with unmistakable clearness the popular sentiment of the hour, the condition of uncertainty, vague alarm, and very general determination to be ready at all events for whatever might come. Form, form, riflemen, form, wrote the laureate. Better a rotten borough or two than a rotten fleet and a town in flames. True that we have a faithful ally, but only the devil knows what he means. This was the alarm and the explanation. We had a faithful ally, no doubt, but we certainly did not quite know what he meant. All the earlier part of the year had witnessed the steady progress of the prince-president of France to an imperial throne. The previous year had closed upon his coup d'etat. He had arrested, imprisoned, banished, or shot his principal enemies, and had demanded from the French people a presidency for ten years, a ministry responsible to the executive power, himself alone, and two political chambers to be elected by universal suffrage. Nearly five hundred prisoners, untried before any tribunal, even that of a drumhead, had been shipped off to Cayenne. The streets of Paris had been soaked in blood. The president instituted a plebiscite, or vote of the whole people, and of course he got all he asked for. There was no arguing with the commander of twenty legions, and of such legions as those that had operated with terrible efficiency on the boulevards. The first day of the new year saw the religious ceremony at Notre Dame to celebrate the acceptance of the ten years' presidency by Louis Napoleon. 
The same day a decree was published in the name of the President declaring that the French eagle should be restored to the standards of the army as a symbol of the regenerated military genius of France. A few days after, the Prince President decreed the confiscation of the property of the Orléans family and restored titles of nobility in France. The birthday of the Emperor Napoleon was declared by decree to be the only national holiday. When the two legislative bodies came to be sworn in, the President made an announcement which certainly did not surprise many persons, but which nevertheless sent a thrill abroad over all parts of Europe. If hostile parties continued to plot against him, the President intimated, and to question the legitimacy of the power he had assumed by virtue of the national vote, then it might be necessary to demand from the people in the name of the repose of France a new title, which will irrevocably fix upon my head the power with which they have invested me. There could be no further doubt. The Bonapartist empire was to be restored. A new Napoleon was to come to the throne. Only the devil knows what he means indeed, so people were all saying throughout England in 1852. The scheme went on to its development, and before the year was quite out, Louis Napoleon was proclaimed Emperor of the French. Men had noticed as a curious, not to say ominous coincidence, that on the very day when the Duke of Wellington died, the Moniteur announced that the French people were receiving the Prince President everywhere as the Emperor-elect, and as the elect of God, and another French journal published an article hinting, not obscurely, at the invasion and conquest of England as the first great duty of a new Napoleonic empire. The Prince President, indeed, in one of the provincial speeches which he delivered just before he was proclaimed emperor, had talked earnestly of peace. In his famous speech to the Chamber of Commerce of Bordeaux on October 9th, he denied that the restored empire would mean war. I say, he declared, raising his voice and speaking with energy and emphasis, the empire is peace. But the assurance did not do much to satisfy Europe. Had not the same voice, it was asked, declaimed with equal energy and earnestness, the terms of the oath to the Republican Constitution? Never, said a bitter enemy of the new empire, believe the word of a Bonaparte, unless when he promises to kill somebody. Such, indeed, was the common sentiment of a large number of the English people during the eventful year when the President became Emperor and Prince Louis Napoleon was Napoleon III. It would have been impossible that the English people could view all this without emotion and alarm. It had been clearly seen how the Prince President had carried his point thus far. He had appealed at every step to the memory of the Napoleonic legend, he had in every way revived and reproduced the attributes of the reign of the great emperor. His accession to power was strictly a military and a Napoleonic triumph. In ordinary circumstances, the English people would not have troubled themselves much about any change in the form of government of a foreign country. They might have felt a strong dislike for the manner in which such a change had been brought about, but it would have been in no wise a matter of personal concern to them but they could not see with indifference the rise of a new Napoleon to power on the strength of the old Napoleonic legend. The one special characteristic of the Napoleonic principle was its hostility to England. The life of the great Napoleon in its greatest days had been devoted to the one purpose of humiliating England. 
his plans had been foiled by England. Whatever hands may have joined in pressing him to the ground, there could be no doubt that he owed his fall principally to England. He died a prisoner of England, and with his hatred of her embittered rather than appeased. It did not seem unreasonable to believe that the successor who had been enabled to mount the imperial throne simply because he bore the name and represented the principles of the first Napoleon would inherit the hatred to England and the designs against England. Everything else that savoured of the Napoleonic era had been revived. Why should this, its principal characteristic, be allowed to lie in the tomb of the first emperor? The policy of the first Napoleon had lighted up a fire of hatred between England and France which at one time seemed inextinguishable. There were many who regarded that international hate as something like that of the hostile brothers in the classic story, the very flames of whose funeral piles refused to mingle in the air, or like that of the rival Scottish families whose blood it was said would never commingle though poured into one dish. It did not seem possible that a new Emperor Napoleon could arise without bringing a restoration of that hatred along with him. There were some personal reasons, too, for particular distrust of the upcoming Emperor among the English people. Louis Napoleon had lived many years in England. He was as well known there as any prominent member of the English aristocracy. He went a good deal into very various society, literary, artistic, merely fashionable, purely rowdy, as well as into that political society which might have seemed natural to him. In all circles the same opinion appears to have been formed of him. From the astute Lord Palmerston to the most ignorant of horse jockeys and ballet girls with whom he occasionally consorted, all who met him seemed to think of the prince in much the same way. It was agreed on all hands that he was a fatuous, dreamy, moony, impractical, stupid young man. A sort of stolid amiability, not enlightened enough to keep him out of low company and questionable conduct, appeared to be his principal characteristic. He constantly talked of his expected accession somehow and sometime to the throne of France, and people only smiled pityingly at him. His attempts at Strasbourg and Bologna had covered him with ridicule and contempt. We cannot remember one authentic account of any Englishman of mark at that time having professed to see any evidence of capacity and strength of mind in Prince Louis Napoleon. When the coup d'etat came and was successful, the amazement of the English public was unbounded. Never had any plot been more skillfully and more carefully planned, more daringly carried out. Here evidently was a master in the art of conspiracy. Here was the combination of steady caution and boundless audacity. What a subtlety of design! What a perfection of silent self-control! How slowly the plan had been matured! How suddenly it was flashed upon the world and carried to success! No haste, no delay, no scruple, no remorse, no fear. And all this was the work of the dull dawdler of English drawing-rooms, the heavy, apathetic, unmoral, rather than immoral, haunter of English racecourses and gambling-houses. What new surprise might not be feared? What subtle and daring enterprise might not reasonably be expected from one who could thus conceal and thus reveal himself and do both with like success? Louis Napoleon, said a member of his family, 
deceived Europe twice, first when he succeeded in passing off as an idiot, and next when he succeeded in passing off as a statesman. The epigram had doubtless a great deal of truth in it. The coup d'etat was probably neither planned nor carried to success by the cleverness and energy of Louis Napoleon. Cooler and stronger heads and hands are responsible for the execution at least of that enterprise. The prince, it is likely, played little more than a passive part in it, and might have lost his nerve more than once, but for the greater resolution of some of his associates, who were determined to crown him for their own sakes as well as for his. But at the time the world at large saw only Louis Napoleon in the whole scheme, conception, execution, and all. The idea was formed of a colossal figure of cunning and daring, a Brutus, a Talleyrand, a Philip of Spain, and a Napoleon I, all in one. Those who detested him most admired and feared him not the least. Who can doubt, it was asked, that he will endeavor to make himself the heir of the revenges of Napoleon? Who can believe any pledges he may give? How enter into any treaty or bond of any kind with such a man? Where is the one that can pretend to say he sees through him and understands his schemes? Had Louis Napoleon any intention at any time of invading England, we are inclined to believe that he never had a regular fixed plan of the kind. But we are also inclined to think that the project entered into his mind with various other ideas and plans more or less vague, and that circumstances might have developed it into an actual scheme. Louis Napoleon was, above all things, a man of ideas in the inferior sense of the word. That is to say, he was always occupying himself with vague, dreamy suggestions of plans that might, in this, that, or the other case, be advantageously pursued. He had come to power probably with the determination to keep it and make himself acceptable to France first of all. After this came doubtless the sincere desire to make France great and powerful and prosperous. At first he had no particular notion of the way to establish himself as a popular ruler, and it is certain that he turned over all manner of plans in his mind for the purpose. Among these must certainly have been one for the invasion of England and the avenging of Waterloo. He let drop hints at times which showed that he was thinking of something of the kind. He talked of himself as representing a defeat. He was attacked with all the bitterness of a not unnatural but very unrestrained animosity in the English press for his conduct in the coup d'etat, and no doubt he and his companions were greatly exasperated. The mood of a large portion of the French people was distinctly aggressive. Ashamed to some degree of much that had been done and that they had had to suffer, many Frenchmen were in that state of dissatisfaction with themselves which makes people eager to pick a quarrel with someone else. Had Louis Napoleon been inclined, he might doubtless have easily stirred his people to the war mood, and it is not to be believed that he did not occasionally contemplate the expediency of doing something of the kind. Assuredly, if he had thought such an enterprise necessary to the stability of his reign, he would have risked even a war with England. But it would not have been tried except as a last resource, and the need did not arise. No one could have known better the risks of such an attempt. He knew England, as his uncle never did, and if he had not his uncle's energy or military genius, he had far more knowledge of the world and of the relative resources and capabilities of nations. 
he would not have done anything rash without great necessity or the prospect of very certain benefit in the event of success. An invasion of England was not, therefore, a likely event. Looking back composedly now on what actually did happen, we may safely say that few things were less likely. But it was not by any means an impossible event. The more composedly one looks back to it now, the more he will be compelled to admit that it was at least on the cards. The feeling of national uneasiness and alarm was not a mere panic. There were five projects with which public opinion all over Europe specially credited Louis Napoleon when he began his imperial reign. One was a war with Russia, another was a war with Austria, a third was a war with Prussia, a fourth was the annexation of Belgium, the fifth was the invasion of England. Three of these projects were carried out. The fourth, we know, was in contemplation. Our combination with France in the first project probably put all serious thought of the fifth out of the head of the French emperor. He got far more prestige out of an alliance with us than he could ever have got out of any quarrel with us, and he had little or no risk. We do not count for anything the repeated assurances of Louis Napoleon that he desired above all things to be on friendly terms with England. These assurances were doubtless sincere at the moment when they were made, and under the circumstances of that moment. But altered circumstances might at any time have induced an altered frame of mind. The very same assurances were made again and again to Russia, to Austria, and to Prussia. The pledge that the empire was peace was addressed, like the Pope's edict, Urbi et Orbi. Therefore we do not look upon the mood of England in 1852 as one of idle and baseless panic. The same feeling broke into life again in 1859, when the Emperor of the French suddenly announced his determination to go to war with Austria. It was in this latter period, indeed, that the volunteer movement became a great national organization, and that the laureate did his best to rouse it into activity in the verses of hardly doubtful merit to which we have already referred. But in 1852 the beginning of an army of volunteers was made, and what is of more importance to the immediate business of our history, the government determined to bring in a bill for the reorganization of the national militia. Our militia was not in any case a body to be particularly proud of at that time. It had fallen into decay and almost into disorganization. Nothing could have been a more proper work for any government than its restoration to efficiency and respectability. Nothing, too, could have been more timely than a measure to make it efficient in view of the altered condition of European affairs and the increased danger of disturbance at home and abroad. We had on our hands at the time, too, one of our little wars, a Caffrey War, which was protracted to a vexatious length and which was not without serious military difficulty. It began in the December of 1850 and was not completely disposed of before the early part of 1853. We could not, therefore, afford to have our defenses in any defective condition, and no labor was more fairly incumbent on the government than the task of making them adequate to their purpose. But it was an unfortunate characteristic of Lord John Russell's government that it attempted so much legislation, not because some particular scheme commended itself to the mature wisdom of the ministry, but because something had to be done in a hurry to satisfy public opinion and the government could not think of anything better at the moment than the first scheme that came to hand. Lord John Russell accordingly introduced a militia bill, 
which was in the highest degree inadequate and unsatisfactory. The principal peculiarity of it was that it proposed to substitute a local militia for the regular force that had been in existence. Lord Palmerston saw great objections to this alteration, and urged them with much briskness and skill on the night when Lord John Russell explained his measure. When Palmerston began his speech, he probably intended to be merely critical as regarded points in the measure which were susceptible of amendment, but as he went on, he found more and more that he had the house with him. Every objection he made, every criticism he urged, almost every sentence he spoke, drew down increasing cheers. Lord Palmerston saw that the House was not only thoroughly with him on this ground, but thoroughly against the government on various grounds. A few nights after, he followed up his first success by proposing a resolution to substitute the word regular for the word local in the bill, thus in fact to reconstruct the bill on an entirely different principle from that adopted by its framer. The effort was successful. The Peelites went with Palmerston, the Protectionists followed him as well, and the result was that 136 votes were given for the amendment and only 125 against it. The government was defeated by a majority of 11. Lord John Russell instantly announced that he could no longer continue in office as he did not possess the confidence of the country. The announcement took the House by surprise. Lord Palmerston had not himself expected any such result from his resolution. There was no reason why the government should not have amended their bill on the basis of the resolution passed by the House. The country wanted a scheme of efficient defense, and the government were only called upon to make their scheme efficient. But Lord John Russell was well aware that his administration had been losing its authority little by little. Since the time when it had returned to power, simply because no one could form a ministry any stronger than itself, it had been only a government on sufferance. Ministers who assumed office in that stopgap way seldom retain it long in England. The Gladstone government illustrated this fact in 1873, when they consented to return to office because Mr. Disraeli was not then in a condition to come in, and were dismissed by an overwhelming majority at the elections in the following spring. Lord Palmerston assigned one special reason for Lord John Russell's promptness in resigning on the change in the Militia Bill. The great motive for the step was, according to Palmerston, the fear of being defeated on the vote of censure about the Cape affairs, which was to have been moved today, as it is, the late government have gone out on a question which they have treated as a motion, merely asserting that they had lost the confidence of the House, whereas if they had gone out on a defeat upon the motion about the Cape, they would have carried with them the direct censure of the House of Commons. The letter from Lord Palmerston to his brother from which these words are quoted begins with a remarkable sentence, I have had my tit-for-tat with John Russell, and I turned him out on Friday last. Palmerston did not expect any such result, he declared. But the revenge was doubtless sweet for all that. This was in February 1852, and it was only in December of the previous year that Lord Palmerston was compelled to leave the Foreign Office by Lord John Russell. The same influence, oddly enough, was the indirect cause of both events. Lord Palmerston lost his place because of his recognition of Louis Napoleon, Lord John Russell fell from power while endeavouring to introduce a measure suggested by Louis Napoleon's successful usurpation. It will be seen in a future chapter 
how the influence of Louis Napoleon was once again fatal to each statesman in turn. The Russell ministry had done little and initiated less. It had carried on Peel's system by throwing open the markets to foreign as well as colonial sugar, and by the repeal of the navigation laws enabled merchants to employ foreign ships and seamen in the conveyance of their goods. It had made a mild and ineffectual effort at a reform bill, and had feebly favoured attempts to admit Jews to Parliament. It sank from power with an unexpected collapse in which the nation felt small concern. End of section 13